0: The scripture reading this morning is from Luke, first chapter, verses 67 through 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. May God bless this reading of his holy word.
1: Let me say just a few words before I begin to preach this morning. For those of you who have been here a while, you will know that some months ago God gave to this church a vision of what we were to be for the next 10 years, what we were to do and what we were to become. Today, this message begins that process. It begins the, tradition, the transition into uh, what will actually begin in 1991, the process. So it's a radical departure that we begin today. You will hear the difference in tone in the preaching. And I hope that if you have decided to stay with us a while, you are ready to get very serious about your relationship with God. Let me advise you on a couple of points From now on, you may want to get a sermon tape because there is no way that you will be able to comprehend what I'm going to be preaching about the first time through. There's simply too much information. And so therefore, if you want God to really plant these words in your heart, get the tape and listen to it several times. And God, through His Holy Spirit, will help thoughts to occur in your mind that have not occurred on Sunday morning. There's too much other agenda on Sunday morning. Secondly, if the Lord tarries, uh, and we do make it through all of of this 10 years, you may want the initial sermon just as a collector's item and say, I heard that first one, and here it is. And uh, you may want to compare it to what we have become. Would you pray with me? God, we come to hear from you. It is a frightening thing to be in the hands of a living God. It is a wonderfully frightening thing. In varying degrees, we want to hear your voice. Help us crack our hearts right now. So that we can hear you not only with our mind, but with our heart. And help us to take it personally, but to also take it collectively. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me have the setting explained uh, to you before we really begin to preach on the context on the content <clears throat> I'm a little nervous right now I, I, this is so, I tell you I am just so caught up in this and so my words will not always come out right and I just pray that the spirit will deliver to you what you need to hear regardless of what I say and that if I say anything mistaken it will be erased and if I, if I say anything mixed up it will be straightened out on the way there Zechariah. The father of John the Baptist had a vision. He had the vision in a certain context, a certain historical context, and a certain personal context. The personal context was that he had been a righteous man. He loved God, and both he and his wife had been a righteous couple. But through no punishment of their own, their dreams had been frustrated. Their dreams for a family had been frustrated. And so Zechariah lived in self-protective cynicism. Because when an angel of the Lord came to him, he would not believe what the angel of the Lord said. He was a righteous man, but he had a tough time with immediate faith when a great hoped-for vision was painted before his eyes. And he lived in a historical context, and the historical context was this. They lived in the middle of an empire in a smaller group of people that were very different. The empire was the Holy Roman Empire. It wasn't the Holy Roman Empire right now. It was just the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Holy Roman Empire until later. It was the Roman Empire that had been founded on some very valid principles. It was founded way way before Christ. And it was founded not on Yahweh God but it was founded on some things that were universally valid. One was that there was a moral fabric of society that transcended all individual desires and wishes. And everybody in that society respected that moral fabric. Another was that it was a patriarchal society in the good sense of the word, in that the fathers took responsibility in the household to love their families in wisdom, in truth, and to care for them, and to be the priest of the household, to be the one through whom God loved the family. So strong was this society... With such a strong family fabric that for the first 500 recorded years of this commonwealth, there was not one recorded case of divorce. But Rome conquered Greece militarily and the Greeks philosophically and ethically and morally conquered Rome. And slowly, the society began to deteriorate and it became dependent on two dynamics. One was a variety of philosophies. Instead of one moral fabric, there was a, de- there was a weakening devotion to that one central moral fabric and there arose within the society a variety of popular philosophies. I will name just three for you because you will recognize them in our own society. One was Stoicism. The Stoics were fundamentally, foundationally, philosophically bright people. But when Stoicism became popularized, it had two effects on the society. Number one, it took their attention off what was transcendent and put it on that which was material, because the Stoics said it is not the gods who count; it is the world that counts, and so therefore, what is important is what is material. And the second thing Stoicism taught the society was how to not care, because they had a philosophy that whatever happens will happen. Kesarah, sara. Sera. So no matter what the vicissitudes of life, don't let them pull you in personally. And there was a broad spectrum of that society that no matter how bad society got, no matter how it deteriorated, there was this little enclave of people that said, it doesn't affect me personally, so therefore I don't care. There was another school The Epicurean school, again, when it was founded, philosophically, had some very good ideas. But the Epicurean school taught two things to the society also. Number one, they taught the society to look at the laws of the universe. They said, if there really is a God or gods, they are far removed. They are not involved in our world anymore. Therefore, we will look at how the universe operates and we will look to see how we can use these laws of the universe to our own personal gain. Because, and this is the second thing they taught everyone, what is really meaningful in life is to have an individually pleasant life. And the third prevailing, rising philosophy of this time, was one belief in astrology and how much control the stars had. And so everyone was anxious to read their charts for the day to see how their day would go. That was what was happening in one segment of the society. In the other segment of the society, there was a strong belief that if society could prosper at all, it would prosper politically so much faith did they have in the political system that that was really the salvation of the culture that they made the emperor a god to worship but that was symbolic simply of their faith that this political political animal this political structure would somehow pull us all together someday as an empire hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years passed. And still, in in Zechariah's time, there was not one bit of evidence of political unity anywhere in the empire, but they still were thinking that someday there would be political unity. Now, in this wider empire, there was a smaller group of people called the Jews. And the Jews through all of their toil and turmoil, had some vague belief that someday God would send a Messiah, a Savior. And because of their connection with the society, they put it in political terms. He would certainly elevate us politically and he would unify us politically. That was the vision that they had. But when Zechariah came out with this word, he was talking to even a smaller group within that Jewish community because because they had divided up into four basic sects and one group was really really looking for a radically different world that God could make someday through the life of a messiah and when zechariah came out and he began to prophesy this Word that is called in the traditional church the Benedictus, the good Word. When he began to prophesy, there was a segment of society whose hearts were quickened, and who knew that this was the time that God had made to make the world different. And I want you to see. First of all, the words of this. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. These people had been slaves practically all of their existence as a nation by the Egyptians by the Babylonians and now by the Romans. But Zechariah says he has visited and redeemed his people. What was he talking about? He was talking about a spirit in them that would not be crushed. No matter what the circumstances, no matter how bad it got in society, there would always be a segment of people that believed that God could, and that someday God would. And anybody that has that spirit, God has visited and redeemed his people. And I want you to know that here's a man who has waited years to have his own son. But he doesn't talk about his son first. He talks about the society in which he he lives. He talks about the people whom he loves. He was so glad for his people. He was so glad for everyone before he was glad for himself. Later on, he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Something about that when I read that, it's just, you know, being the father of a son, And knowing all the hopes that you have in your kids. All the hopes you have for your kids. I can imagine. Well, I can't really imagine the son that I had waited for so long to be part of the hope of a nation. But yet I can when I see my kids and I want them to be part of the hope of a nation. You know, I didn't have our children for us. I had them for God. And when I look at them, I'm not raising them for us. and I'm not raising them to protect. I'm raising them for salt and light into the world. And I can see what Zechariah felt from the very beginning day. Not only will he be my son, and not only will I love him, and not only will I raise him, But he will be a tool of God. Well, I want to go through and talk about our land and talk about our context because I believe with all my heart that God is calling us to believe that he can make a radically different world here someday. And I believe that the coming of the Messiah will be the basis for that radically different world. First of all, I will help us notice the similarities in the context of our culture. We too have a culture that is divided philosophically. We too have a culture that looks toward individuals And Satan has helped us to focus on ourselves in this culture and really believe that this world is all about being personally comfortable and being personally pleasant. And so that's our agenda. We also believe that there are certain rules and regulations and things that we can work to our advantage in this world, and we do it both politically and spiritually. And we believe that that's God's agenda. We also believe that we should not be too much affected by other people. Because if we were affected by other people, we would not be able to help them all. So why be affected by any of them? And so we isolate and we cocoon ourselves. And we pay attention to our own little family and pursue our goal of self-fulfillment, all the while looking at a society that is deteriorating by the very virtue of everybody wants self-fulfillment. Even our good efforts meet with sinful results. We've had a war on poverty in this country for 25 years. Lyndon Johnson, bless his heart, founded the Great Society, 1964. You will remember all of the talk about how we were going to eliminate poverty. At that time, he put, I think, $14 million into that program. That program has grown $180 billion. And we have more poverty in this country today than we had when that program began. The welfare budget for next year alone is $24 billion. And that's just one segment of our war on poverty. And do you know why it's failed? Because we didn't fight poverty, we built government there were a hundred new agencies created so that our war on poverty has resulted in the government employing one out of every hundred Americans to fight the war on poverty. Seventy percent of the money that is supposed to fight poverty goes into the pockets of middle-class Americans who are employed by the government to fight poverty. And only 30% ever reaches the poor. We believe that the political system is our savior. The political system is not our savior. It will never be our savior because sin is always before us and we'll always find a way how to benefit the people in control. Always. We say, well, I tell you what, what would be a good idea is if we let people gamble. And then we can help out our school systems. And then we can help out our communities with the revenue from that gambling. You know the story to this. That's what they said when they went to Atlantic City. And they said, we want to build one of the gambling centers of this country. And Atlantic City was in poor shape. Its missions were overflowing with poor people its crime rate was terrible and they said with all of our revenues we can revitalize this community and people bought it and now years later that gambling is 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 producing 2.73 billion dollars of revenue for the government per year and that community has the Highest crime rate in New Jersey, and the missions are still full to overflowing with poor people. Well, let's give all of the money from the lottery to education, and then we'll have all this extra money in education. Those of you in education, do you have the extra money? Absolutely not. As soon as it was was appointed, it was reallocated. Sure, the money from the lottery goes in there, and they've taken all the rest. You think government is the answer? Government is not the answer. Politics is not the answer. We will never have a radically different world because we can't depend on that. At the same same time, the family is disintegrating. The divorce rate right now is 50% in this nation, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think that people who are in this congregation who have been through divorce or for divorce, you have another thing coming because there's nobody who's more radically for successful marriages than people who have had to suffer through divorce. It is so important that we begin to look to our families and to see what's coming unraveled. You know, in the black community, which is hit hardest by the poverty, one in four black kids is born into poverty. One in four American kids is born into poverty. Sixty percent of the black kids that are born, are not they're not born into a household with a father there. There are as many black men in prison as there are in college. And when it comes to the domestic scene and the disintegration of the family, how many, I don't know how many kids you people know black black kids and black people. But the testimony is I had this religious grandmother. It wasn't my parents. It was this religious grandmother. Let me ask you something. What's going to happen when all those religious grandmothers die? What's going to happen to that community? They're a part of us. They're a part of us. And the white community isn't doing all that great either. You know why? Because the white family is disintegrating because, now I'm going to start stepping on toes and I hope that everybody gets mad enough to think about this. Our kids are an absolute mess, collectively speaking. We send them to school to hope that the teachers can straighten them out. And so the teachers have all this new agenda of not only transferring content, but exercising discipline... They spend 50% of their time exercising discipline, but will we let them? No, we take away that authority also because you can't touch my kid. Don't talk to Johnny. His self-esteem might hurt. You might get, you know, are you kidding me? The teachers can't handle this. They weren't put there to be a mother and a father. They were put there to be a teacher. Do you know what it is? Parents are cowards. We have parents in this nation we have air-headed kids because we do not have parents that will get in the face of their kids and love them firmly for 10 to 15 years. Does that take more energy than you have? You bet it does. That's why God's there, and that's why we need Him. But anytime we transfer the parenting of our child to the school system or to the church is because we're cowards. How many people in this nation use their jobs not to provide for the needs of the family, but as an escape from the family. Don't you think your kids know that? Don't you think your kids know when you're backing away from them and you're too scared? Oh, every month, once in a while you might have a fight. But both the abuse of children and by by, by violence and the abuse of children by violence uh, Libertarianism comes from the cowardice of parents who will not communicate with their kids for years and years on end. We're afraid of violence in this nation. Every time I hear somebody who's going to travel, especially if they're going to travel overseas, I hear fear of terrorism. Do you know your chances, if you are traveling overseas, your chances of being killed by a terrorist are one in over 650,000? Well, I don't have to go overseas to be afraid. I'm afraid to go out in the city because the city is getting so violent. Your chances of being killed in a major metropolitan uh, area, such as Baltimore, Maryland, is one in over 4,000. Your chances of being killed, though, if you are a child in the womb of an American woman, is one in three. That's violence. That's the destruction of a family. And we believe that it's going to be corrected by politics. And there are some things that we can do politically But there is nothing that can correct a nation but a devotion to something higher than its own pleasure. There's nothing that can help. Do you know what it means to subtract that devotion and argue anything philosophically? You try to argue the case for not taking drugs philosophically and not be able to say there is a higher moral standard that is right and wrong that we must obey no matter how we feel. You try and do that. Go into the neighborhood over here and get a black kid that is selling uh, dope or a white kid in another neighborhood. And you try without using a moral argument to reason with them why they should go to McDonald's and flip hamburgers for 425 an hour instead of making 500 to 1000 dollars a week selling cocaine. You try and do that and you will look like a perfect idiot. You know why? Because if we don't have a higher moral law, there is no reason not to sell drugs. There is no reason not to get as much money as possible. There is no reason not to get divorced. There is no reason for anything else. We live in a world that is much like the Roman Empire, that is deteriorating in much the same fashion. But there's a segment of that world that has hope. There's a segment of that world that does look for something beyond the, oh gosh, this is a pitiful phrase, the standards of the community. Do you realize what sorry shape we're in when the best we can hope for is the Supreme Court phrase, When in accordance with obscenity and many other things, is the prevailing standards of the community. Could heavens God help us? Arnold Toynbee, one of the most renowned historians ever lived, wrote in one of his books, in his 2020 Hindsight, the majority is seldom if ever, correct about anything. And we're going to have as our standard of morality the prevailing standards of the community? No way. It won't work. But there's a small segment, as I was saying, of people who are willing to believe that God can make a difference if a society is built not politically on God, But if individual lies are built on God's agenda. Do you know the difference? I'm sorry. Let me me just show you some scriptures here and show you where we're going. God works on what he has founded. That's the reason why in Matthew chapter 1, in those uh, genealogies, um, it is... Out of that that the Savior is born. Um, If you will note the arrangement of those genealogies. You will note that God began to build a people. With, in Matthew's case, Father Abraham. And he built them up into a great people. Because they were concerned about everyone and not just themselves. If you will see his call in Genesis chapter 12. His call is communal. It is not individual. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your comp- your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now listen to this. And I will make of you a great individual. No, that's said. I will make you a great nation. You see... What matters to God is not just us as individuals, but us as a body. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's dream always has a so that. I am blessing you so that someone else can benefit. Do you see? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows up into the greatest of all bushes so that the birds of the air may nest in its branches. There is always a function to the dream of God. For those of us who continue to say, God, what will you do with my individual life? Let me challenge you to think of the next realm of the prayer so that you can do what in the world? So that the world will benefit how? You know, I did a little study uh, this week on the me go- what I call the me gospel, what other people call the prosperity gospel. There's a whole segment of Christianity out there that is much, much like the Epicureans that say, let's use the law of the universe to benefit ourselves to have a pleasant life. God wants us to have pink Cadillacs. And so they claim it, and they go after it. And I think, where in the world, is this new? Well, the prosperity part that God wants to bless his people is not new. In the Puritan foundation of this country, the prosperity gospel was very much alive, but it is so different. Satan has perverted that so much in just a couple of hundred years because when the Puritans founded this country, They did expect for people to work. They did expect for God to bless. But their vision was for the community. Personal wealth was irrelevant. It was God, how will you bless me for the good of everybody? That was their goal. They were to become, remember the phrase, the biblical phrase? They were to become for the world A city set on a hill. Remember that? As an example to benefit the entire world. And we in this nation have gone from dreaming about being a city set on a hill. From dreaming of having a cabin in the mountains. Just us. To get away. You know what? never said this before but I'm saying it now for a preacher to drive a Rolls Royce is blasphemous do you think God cares about how many cars you've got when there are kids starving to death in this country do you think he cares about how many houses I want when there are people going without it is blasphemous we do not have a God who just cares about us and about our richness. Now, he cares for you individually because if you were the only person in this world to ever live, Jesus would have come and died for you. That's how much God cares for you as an individual. But to translate that into a personal prosperity gospel is a perversion everything this word says. And here we are trying to make the world so that it suits us. Can I be happy? Can we ever really have a different society? Not by riding donkeys and elephants we can't. Can we ever really have a different society? I believe we can. I believe down deep in my heart that there is a different society, a society that is radically different that is just around the corner. But I believe that a small segment of people need to believe that it can happen and need to make God and others the priority over themselves. I really believe that with all my heart. And I know it can happen historically. I know it can. It can happen for two reasons. Number one, because God has put into every one of your hearts the ideal of something bigger than yourself. If that wasn't true, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. We don't preach the prosperity gospel here. And so you're here because God has put into your heart something more important than your own individual welfare. And he's put it into all of his people. If you'll read in, in, in Romans 8 28, let me just read that to you. In every one of our hearts where God dwells, there's a longing toward that society. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. you hear that? The anxious longing of all this world. All this world would like to see a group of people that are selfless. All this world waits to see someone who's not out for themselves and ready to crush somebody else. All of them wait to see the sons of God. Read on with me. For the creation was subject, was subjected to futility, not of its own will. You think we want to, be, to, to have a sense that nothing is, is progressing? Absolutely not. But because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God. Of the children of God. We started out. In that genealogy in Matthew. Being formed into a people. Who were made for greatness. To be a city set on a hill. And the apex reached in King David. After the first 14 generations. You can see that the apex is in King David. But King David. Was more a bomber than he was a builder. And after King David died, it quickly degenerated into slavery, epitomized in the next 14 generations by the captivity in Babylon. Babylon. And then in the last segment, Jesus comes to offer people a hand out of the slavery of living in this world for themselves. And he's still doing it. Can the world be different you bet it can. Those of you who know this story about Mutiny on the Bounty, it was an actual historical story. And you will know that those mutineers were dumped on an island in the South Pacific called Pitcairn Island. And I can't remember how many natives there were. Uh, maybe, I mean, a... Uh, uh, um, from the ship, uh, maybe a dozen or so and maybe a half a dozen uh, white guys and, and I think there was one teenage white girl. And they tried to live in a society on that island. And somebody learned how to distill liquor. And the society that was struggling before at that point being given an anesthetic Being given nothing to build, no hope, no vision, no cause, the society so degenerated that there was one of that original crew left alive. His name was Alexander, I think, Smith. And one day, Alexander Smith stumbled over a Bible, figuratively speaking, and he opened it up and he began to read and he decided that he would found his life and his relations with all other people on that word of God. And as he related to the rest of the natives on that island, he did just that. It was 20 years before another ship came. And do you know what that ship discovered when it landed on that island? Let me tell you what it didn't discover. It didn't discover any prisons because there wasn't any crime. It didn't discover any hospitals because there wasn't any disease. It didn't discover any illiteracy because families took responsibility for their own. It didn't discover anything but loving people who could give to people in addition to themselves. That's what it discovered. Can God build another society? Only on his agenda, not on ours. But he can. We can't divide up and say we're right and they're wrong because as soon as we do that, we are fighting a war by politics and flesh instead of by the spirit. And God comes down to us and says, If you want another society, you follow me. And I will build it. I will build it. I don't represent you. I don't represent them. I represent me. You want a passage for that? It's in Joshua chapter 5. Let me read that to you. Joshua chapter 5. I love this. Joshua is about to go fight this huge army. And there appears this huge vision of a warrior to him one night. Verse 13, now it came about that when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and look, looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us? or for our adversaries and look at the response he said no no rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord You understand if we are ready for God's agenda in our lives instead of our own agenda for this world if we are let If we will let God do the leadership, he will make a different world. There was a small group of people who really heard Zechariah that day. There was a small group of people who had their hearts quickened and said, I want to live in that world and I will pay any price to see the Messiah come. And to live in that world. I can't predict what that's going to be like. Although I have some ideas what it would be like. It may not be like that. But I will pay any price to see this happen. And I will pray and watch until it comes. I don't talk to all of you today. I'm just talking to a little group of people. Whose hearts are ready to receive the word of Zechariah. Who are ready to believe that the Messiah Jesus is in this world for seriousness and for change. And who are ready to see the whole world change in accordance to what God wants it to be. Would you pray with me? God, I don't even know how to pray. I know the words of the man who came to you and said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I know the disappointments he had had all of his life, and so there was a large streak in him that was cynical and reluctant to believe that you could do, actually do what you said you would. But there's another part of us that wants to believe it so badly. We want to believe it not only for ourselves, but for our children and for our grandchildren. For them, we want a chance to see a world of people who will love and give and not take. A people who will worship and not try to gain all the praise for themselves. We want them to see that. And we want to see it in us. Help us to believe in you. And then to watch what you do in the world. Help that segment of this body of people this morning. that can hear that voice in their lives. Who want that and will say anything it will take, God. That's what I'll give. Pull them close to you right now. And say... You're my remnant. With you, I will build. In Jesus' name, amen.